you listen tonight, um, let yourself listen um, not so much to remember what's said, no tests or exams, um, but more to sense if it resonates with what you already know to be true in the most fundamental way in your own heart, your own experience, um, because that's what's of value to you, your own, your own wisdom. And what I'd like to speak about tonight is some of the aspects of wisdom in a traditional way that's taught in the Buddhist world. Um, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who is this very wonderful and quite happy human being who, uh, with whom I studied in the forest monasteries of uh, Thailand for some years, um, and no matter what kind of things happened, all the vicissitudes of running a large monastery and actually being the abbot in the end of a hundred, two hundred monasteries, he was this person who had a gracious, easy, joyful way of being when things were good and when things were difficult. And one day somebody asked if he could explain that, and he held up a cup that he had, someone had given him this beautiful old like Ming Dynasty Chinese cup that was quite wonderful. Um, and he held it up and he said to me, this is already broken. And because it's already broken, I can use it, I can drink from it, I can enjoy it, and when it breaks, <laughs> which it probably will, he said, I can let go of it without any sorrow. Because I understand that things are the way that they are. And by understanding that the cup is broken, I can treasure it and care for it, and at the same time, not be attached in the way that makes people unhappy. And he laughed. And what he was talking about was a different kind of happiness than what you see in the advertising that's presented to you, you know, 24-7 in this culture. There are two kinds of happiness in the Buddhist um, description of our experience. One is called worldly happiness, and it's the kind of pleasures that we have and enjoy, and rightfully so. The pleasures of our uh, senses, the pleasures of our connections with one another in all the meaningful ways. The other, in addition to the worldly happiness, um, is called the happiness of wisdom. And the happiness of wisdom, which is a different kind of happiness, um, is the happiness for no reason. It's the happiness that's not dependent on particular conditions. Um, it's the happiness that understands how to live wisely and discover freedom and compassion no matter what the changing circumstances. And in fact, all the different spiritual masters and books, you go in the bookstore and it's filled with all these you know, 10,000 spiritual books and teachings, all of these things are not about attaining some particular experience or state that you get to. Because all states come and go. I think you've noticed that, haven't you? But they are rather teachings about how to live in accord with the way things are. When we can see the way things are, really deeply, see them and know them and sense them, then wisdom comes for us. Like Ajahn Chah holding the cup and saying, I know that it's already broken. 
And the way things are includes joy and sorrow. It includes um, this beautiful baby that was here, Ella, and all the births of children coming in and, you know, the celebrations of marriages and all the, 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 the fruit of lovely things coming into our life. And it also includes loss and death, suicide that I talked about a couple of weeks ago and child soldiers that I talked about last week from the retreat that I was on with all these young guys from parts of our um, poorest communities in the cities and Watts in East Los Angeles and parts of Chicago and so forth, you know, who are jumped into gangs at very young ages and are in a kind of undeclared war, the street war. And it was interesting to see them together with some of the vets coming back from Iraq because they both felt like they'd been through the same thing. So here we have this incarnation into this human world that we are with 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And if we want to understand how to live with a wise heart, the truth of it is nearer than near. It is our direct experience, light and dark, sweet and sour, day and night, hot and cold, birth and death. And also, from your perspective and point of view, whatever point of view you have, there's another, right? Things aren't fixed. It is really the way it is. Look in your own experience. And this is what the Buddha said. He said, don't believe me. Don't take my words. Don't take the words of other teachers. Don't take them because they're written down in some old book or some antique language. But look and see for yourself the way things are and live your life in accordance with this and see if this does not bring wisdom and happiness and graciousness and ease on this earth in which you have taken birth. Betrayal is not to live from what you know. Because the most fundamental betrayal in life is when we betray ourselves, when we betray our hearts, when we betray what we really know to be true. So we come and sit in meditation, and some of it's release. You know, you sit, and the tensions in the body release, and the unfinished business of the heart comes. You sit quietly, and all of a sudden you realize the tears that weren't shed need to be shed, or the love that you haven't expressed shows itself and wants to be expressed. The things we haven't listened to show themselves. Hi, including the babies. Hi, Ella. Very sweet. Um... But after those layers of the things that we hold that start to kind of open and be held and received by our experience, um, if we sit with attention as a courteous audience would to our own experience and begin to examine it, what we start to see is not just the content of our experience, the sadness or excitement or longing or love or happiness, but we also see the underlying qualities of it. And we start to see, as the Buddha says, that every experience that arises passes away. And because every single experience that arises passes away, all things are ungraspable. They're not reliable. They can't be taken as me or mine in our control. Your thoughts, your feelings, your perceptions, 
your bodily sensations, the, 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 the play of experience of life itself, the breath. So this is kind of obvious <clears throat> in a certain way. It's not like we don't know this. But do we really know it? Do we know it in the way that we move and live is the question. And the invitation in meditation is to sit in the midst of your experience as we just sat, the breath and the feelings and thoughts and perceptions, and to rest in our Buddha nature, to rest in the space of awareness that knows the play of experience but isn't lost in it, isn't reactive to each one. I like this and I hate that and I need more of this and less of that. Not because that's wrong particularly, but because it doesn't make us happy. It puts us always at odds with the way things are. And the way things are, if we pay attention, even for a moment and drop into the heart and try to sense, well, what is our experience and into our bodies? What we notice first is that it's all a river. That that was the Buddha's description of this body and mind. You are a river. A river of thoughts. I'm sure you saw that a few minutes ago. A river of feelings and emotions. A river of sensations. A river of perceptions. And our life is a river. And this quality of change or impermanence um, is not what, what we're being sold and not what we're, you know, what we think about in our culture. It seems as that although we thought ourselves permanent, says the Buddha, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. Whatever we pay attention to is in change. And Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said that his enlightenment came in the moment when he realized that nothing could ever be repeated. And we try and repeat things, but actually every moment is a little different and new in this river. Nothing can be repeated. Not always so, was his phrase. 28, 30, 50 recorded civilizations, the ancient Sumerian and the Hellenic and the Aztec and the Egyptian and some of the great, the Mongol Empire and the Portuguese, remember that one? The Spanish, they had a, their day, right? The British, the Soviet in some of your lifetimes. Remember that big one? Go on. Let's not talk about the American Empire. That's a whole other end of empire talk, right? But it's the way that it is. They arise and then pass away. And we experience that. Galaxies, our particular star, sun, is on one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy, and it revolves like a big Ferris wheel every hundred million years. And it's sort of a medium, modest sun as they go, of the hundred billion stars in our galaxy. And in fact, because there are from the Hubble telescope, there have been um, recorded 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. That means there are so many stars in the visible universe to the Hubble that if every person on Earth were allowed to name the stars of the universe, you would each be allowed to name 1.5 trillion stars. (laughs) 
That's how many. I mean, you think you're important, I know, at some point, but you would get a hundred, one, one and a half trillion stars of, of your own to name. <laughs> but it's not just the cycles of the galaxy or the seasons or the lunar cycles or the flow of the cerebral spinal fluid or the menstrual cycles or the cycles of the stock market, right? Um, but a friend of mine who works in the emergency room was saying that um, the people who come through his emergency room and die, die at age 1 and at age 10 and at age 20 and 30 and 40 and all different ages. It's not like it's just for somebody at a particular age. And of course we all are looking for some kind of security through our bank accounts and our home and our identity and so forth. And the U.S. now spends close to $200 billion just on security devices. Security, says Helen Keller, is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So we can look for security, but in some way, and it's a fine thing to do. I mean, you need to tend to things and lock your car and various things like that. But it's temporary. I mean, it's not even your car. You rent it for a while. Okay, you sort of own it, but, you know, then you give it up. I assure you that will happen. (laughs) You can't take it with you, you know. A friend of mine who's a hospice director said this 95-year-old woman came in and was complaining to him, why me? <laughs> Seriously. You know, so we have, we have some problem in our culture <laughs> with looking at the way things are. It's not just our culture, though. Here's one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism. The Chinese government has banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating, this is just last month, without, without government permission. According to a statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the law which goes into effect next month strictly stipulates the procedure by which one is to reincarnate is an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. This is true. This is true. But listen, the Chinese could look at our security apparatus and, you know, laugh in the same way. We have our plans, and yet, says the Buddha, it is like sandcastles. That's his image. We build these sandcastles, and they're beautiful. I mean, I like, do you ever go on the beach when people build great sandcastles? It's a fabulous thing to do. And, duh. <laughs> so, the point of this is that you can relax. It's more like being in the movies or the theater. Praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute are called the eight worldly winds and they change like the swish of a horse's tail. They do. Anybody not have praise and blame? Raise your hand. You can have your money back, right? (laughs) Pleasure and pain, gain and loss. You know, or we try to build the levees and dikes, and I think we should, we need to protect things. But you start, look around at the rising seas, and then people are importing sand and dredging it up and so forth, and they're not paying attention to the way things are. 
So we begin to sit in meditation and all we do is hold our bodies still and bring this courteous attention to our incarnation. Here we are, incarnate in this way. And rest in awareness and begin to notice, oh, we are a river. And things actually can't be possessed. You can't possess your thoughts or feelings. They come and go of their own. It's called seeing the waterfall. Insight meditation, the first insight. See the waterfall, the inner dialogue. The thoughts, remember that cartoon, the car driving across, you know, the Nevada desert and great vast landscape and the roadside billboard that says, your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, right? (laughs) That's meditation. It just kind of, and moods and how many feelings, you like it and you don't, you feel like you're doing well and then you're judging yourself and, you know, and then you're proud because you notice, I saw that I was judging myself and, you know. And not only does the mind and the feelings do it, but the heart too breathes. It opens and closes. And sometimes you're in love and it's wonderful. And sometimes you just, like a flower, you have to close. You know, and the idea isn't to kind of, okay, let's tear the flower open and keep it open all the time. (laughs) You know, and just keep it that way. Things aren't that way. Everything expands and contracts. It's like that cartoon in the San Francisco Chronicle that showed the camels going across the desert, the father on one camel and the mother on another and then three children on smaller camels with their carpets and their bags and the little kid and the father having a conversation and the father says, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud, right? And that's kind of... But it's true. It is the reality of our human experience. And it keeps changing. I read, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but Einstein said that when you sit on a couch with a pretty girl, uh, an hour can seem like a couple of minutes, and when you sit on a hot stove, a couple of minutes can seem like an hour, and that's relativity, right? <laughs> but that there's something in that, whether, it's, whether he said it or not, that even time itself really changes, does it? It stretches out at times, and then it disappears, And somehow we get it wrong. We think, well, the idea is to hold on to some state. I've got it. I'm meditating. Now I'm really there and everything is clear and beautiful and I'm just going to keep it this way, you know. (laughs) But it's like not breathing. You can't hold it. That's not the point. The point is to relax and rest in the reality of the present and know that things are born and things pass away. And then we say, yeah, things, but how about moi, as Miss Piggy would say. That's the big one, isn't it, you know? All right, it's all right for other things. Well, maybe not your bank account, but whatever. So this is a poem from Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. This is for some of the more seniors among us, myself included. I get my things from the AARP now and, you know, they have all these kind of attractive older people in there (laughs) called Forgetfulness. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of, as if one by one the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. (laughs) 
Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away, a state flower perhaps, the address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It has floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L as far as you can recall. (laughs) Whose name begins with an L as far as you can recall. Well on your own way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. And it's tender and it's funny and it's poignant and it's true. You know, that we, even our intellect and all the things, and you know, I, I had a pretty good, had, notice that word, <laughs> a pretty good memory. <clears throat> and I notice it's starting to unravel and dismantle itself. And okay, that's part of the cycle of things. So, you know, what do we do with all of this? This is from Ajahn Sumedho, English, wonderful English monk and American monk who was an abbot in England. He says, for Western minds obsessed by thinking and grasping, you can simplify your meditation practice to just two words, let go, rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that. The grasping mind wants to read all the Buddhist texts and sutras and study the Abhidharma and learn Sanskrit and Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana and write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? Let go. For years, this was my practice. Every time I tried to understand and become something that I wasn't, I'd say, let go, let go until that desire faded and I could be with what is. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya radiating love through the world. Instead, just be an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, this ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only these poverty-stricken practices. But meditation is so healing, really, because it's, it's different than almost everything else we do. It's an invitation to be present for life rather than to change it and fix it and manipulate it. And, and it's an invitation to trust, to shift from fear and disappointment and all those things which come in the content and to rest in the reality of the present. And it's possible to let go and to respect our bodies and to respect our creativity, to respect the life we've been given, but to do it in a way that flows with the changes of life. All the kinds of changes that we know rather than grasping. And, and this is really the, the dance of wisdom. It's not that one stops the way things are. You can't really stop it. But that the heart becomes wise and says, yes, 
this is the season, this is the way things are, this is the next to attend to, to be gracious with, to care for. Mary Oliver, for years and years I struggled just to love my life. Already a good line. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And this is this wonderful dichotomy of wisdom that holds both the preciousness of life, that we have to care for things, and the ephemeralness of it, that even though we care for it, it's like that butterfly that says, don't love your life too much. And wisdom knows this. It's like the wisdom of the Tao. I mean, just without moving, let yourself reflect for a moment, a kind of invitation of your own wisdom. What is it time to let go of in your life? Or what is true, the way things are, that wants your acceptance so you can be wise with it? instead of lost and struggle. Can you sense in yourself what it is like when you move with the flow of life rather than denying the way things are? Yeah, thank you. There we are, a little cheering system in the back from Ella. When you let go, it's not that you don't care for life. You can care for your children, your bodies, your work, the things you're given. You can honor life, but it's honoring it in a gracious way. Like honoring your garden, not trying to make your garden absolutely perfect and, you know, get the photograph for Architectural Digest and, you know, Martha Stewart's cover or whatever it is but the love of the garden itself and the knowing that a garden is a process. To tend and care and also to move with the change of life is a wise heart. And it makes you happy. It makes the people around you happy because you know it. Now, because things change, the second quality that the Buddha spoke of often is the quality of unreliability, instability. The, the word in Sanskrit or Pali is dukkha. It also means hard to bear or subject to suffering. And I remember when I was really sick in the forest monastery with malaria, at least I think it was malaria, and I was lying on the floor of my hut, you know, and some monks had come to visit me. I couldn't eat anything, and I had these terrible fevers and shaking and so forth, and they gave me a bit of medicine. And then Ajahn Chah, my teacher, came to visit me, and he looked at me and he said, sick, huh? I said, yeah, kind of. He said, really sick? I said, yeah. He said, makes you want to go home, huh? I said, yeah, think of, think of your mother, don't you? I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, this is suffering, all right. This is one kind of suffering. He said, we've all had it, those of us who lived out in the jungle and the forest. Before, we didn't have very good med- medicine for it. Now, at least, there's medicine in in the next few days, you'll, you'll probably get better. I like that probably, right? You know. He said, can you bear it, was his question. And it was really tender. He said, we've all, I've, we've all done it. Do you think you can bear it? He said, you can, you know. 
you can, you know. And he looked at me, it was very tender and very kind. He said, you, you'll get through it. You can bear it, even without your mommy, you know. <laughs> and um, that was one of the meanings of dukkha. Can you bear it? Can you bear the world? But to have an open heart and a wise heart means also that we have to bear witness to the sorrows of the world and to know that this is part of the game of incarnation. Because everything is in change, it is all subject to loss. And the Buddha said at one point, which do you think is more uh, the height of the highest mountain in the world or the pile of bones that you would make from all your previous lives, if you believe this stuff? Um, Greater is the pile of bones of all your incarnations than the highest mountain on earth. Um, So pay attention to the fact that things change and that they're unstable and subject to loss. There's the dukkha of change, because things change that we don't want to have change. And the dukkha of the fact that there's pain along with pleasure. And the dukkha of existence somehow just woven together with it. This is the Buddhist noble truth, that this is part of life. And it's said when the Buddha awoke in the night of his enlightenment and found this tremendous freedom that's possible for each person, he said, oh, we can be free, absolutely free. Then he looked around the world and he began to weep, looked with the eye of compassion, he began to weep tears because he saw people suffering so much, often because they were doing the very things that they thought would make them happy but were leading to more suffering. So many people doing things that were going to lead them to more suffering based on greed and fear and confusion and clinging and hatred of others and so forth. So much suffering that we make for ourselves. And some of it's personal and some of it's more collective. You know, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all the other parts of the world that are in conflict, the Palestinians and Israelis, we all feel it. It's not that it's just there. It impacts us. And we have to carry that somehow and hold it with some tender heart. The fact that there are children in the world that are hungry today, and not a few, but tens and tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, and that 10% of the arms budget would feed all of those children and that it doesn't happen. I mean, what kind of incarnation is this that we don't care for our children? And we carry this. War, loss, violence, racism, the things that make suffering. And the most amazing thing is that the majority of sufferings for human being now are created by humans themselves. Out of our greed and possessiveness and hatred and fear of one another, or our prison system. You know, in this country alone, one of the largest prison systems in the whole world, almost more than any other country, five, five and a half million people within our prison and parole system. And when I was visiting San Quentin, one of many visits, an Insight Prison Project, talking with the long-term warden there, Jeannie Woodford, who was there for a very long time, and then Schwarzenegger appointed her to be, for a while, head of all California prisons. She said, I'm not just concerned about the thousands of people in my prison. I'm concerned about the hundreds of thousands of children of these men and women 
who are on their way to these prisons unless we do something about the whole system that brings these people here. That that was her concern, breakdown of community and all these, all these things. We have to somehow see in another way. So this is part of dukkha, and we all know it. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, I think it's, or somewhere in the Mahabharata, there's a scene in which, I'll say it's in the Gita for the moment, which Arjuna is talking to, to Krishna, to God, and talking about all the marvels of the world, and then at some point says, you know, what is the most marvelous thing on this earth? And um, Krishna answered, the most marvelous thing on this earth of human beings is that people can see others dying all around them and somehow think it won't happen to them. That's the most amazing thing of all that I've seen. Or as Emily Dickinson says, because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. (laughs) Big surprise, you know. And we think if I do it right, if I jog and do my therapy and go to the gym and, you know, all the other things that are good to do, it's nothing wrong with that, that we won't have loss and we won't have aging and we won't have sickness and fear and so forth. Anybody succeed? Just looking, checking this out. If we do it right, there won't be sickness or loneliness. I mean, I had this amazing experience because loneliness is very hard for me. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get married and this beautiful woman that I love, who's my wife, I've been with her almost for 30 years. I thought, well, that will cure it. Ha! You know, and then I had that kind of sinking revelation one day after I was into my marriage for a while that there I was with this person I loved a lot and I was still lonely. You know, because it wasn't about that person. It was really part of our own human condition, certainly mine. Loneliness, self-hatred, grief, broken heart, kinds of betrayal that we have. Or the phone call that comes from the doctor that says, you know, you have to come in for a biopsy. And it happens. Or the housing market. I mean, you live in the Bay Area, so things are better, but, you know, all these literally millions of people losing their homes. These kinds of things change. Or the aging of our parents. And you think spiritual practice will make you exempt from this? Lama Yeshe, this great and wise Tibetan Lama, one of the most wonderful teachers to come to the West, when he was hospitalized for cardiac problems, almost died, he said, I've been in the hospital for 41 days and my mind has turned into an anti-god. My body, I'm like the lord of a cemetery and my speech is like the barking of an old mad dog. After all these years of practice, this is what it's like to be in the ICU for 40 days and all the injections and all the things that have happened. He said, and I'm just barely able to use my practice, you know, to find some center in all this. So we sit, and in one way, we stop running. And instead of running away, we face with mercy and compassion ourselves, our own incarnation, the limitations of humanity as well as its beauty. It's as if our sitting creates for us a temple, a place of mercy within which to hold the difficulties, that which is hard to bear, 
which is part of the incarnation. Because it's not that you don't get it, but it's how do you live with it? How do you work with it? Elie Wiesel says, who was a Nobel Prize winner for his studies of the Nazis and World War II and so forth, Holocaust, he says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And so along with the relaxation and the change of life, meditation also gives a kind of courage, and it's the courage of compassion with passion, with the heart, to meet the measure of sorrows and the measure of joy that we are given. The quality of mercy, says Shakespeare, this is Portia speaking, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. And somehow when we find a mercy a compassion to hold the measure of our own struggles and sorrows in our heart. It not only blesses us, but it blesses those around us. Because a lot of the suffering in the world comes from people who are unwilling to bear their own pain and put it on somebody else. Those people who are different, they're the cause of what I can't bear in myself. They become the enemy. And so there comes the possibility of a real transformation of the difficulties of life along with its you know, change um, to a big heart, to the compassion that is your Buddha nature. And the last of these three characteristics or qualities of experience in this incarnation, the river of change, not always so, the inevitability of sorrow as well as joy, of pain as well as pleasure, of death as well as how they're woven together, dukkha, is the selflessness of it, anatta, shunyata, is the teaching, which is to say that if we're identified and take things personally, we will suffer a lot because they're not really very personal. And as you pay attention you can sense the small sense of self, what I call the body of fear, that always thinks, well, this is who I am and that's who the other. But beyond that, if you pay attention, thoughts think themselves, feelings feel themselves. There's this whole river of experience, most of which we're not in control of. We have the chance to respond to it, to, in some way to take what's given to us and make something beautiful from it. But it's tremendously liberating to not take things so personally. My teacher Nisargadot says, Wisdom sees I am nothing, and love sees I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. The breath breathes itself. The body ages, and we take care of it, and feed it, and clothe it, and jog it, and do all these things. And it has its own life. That's not who you are. If you think you're your body, you're really in trouble. Well, then on my thoughts, well, that would be even worse, wouldn't it? You know, <laughs> on my emotions. 
And if you look deeply, it's not the way that it is. Remember the story of Mullah Nasruddin going into the bank, this Sufi, Middle Eastern, holy fool, to cash a check, and he reaches into his pocket, pulls out a... Well, somebody says, would you please identify yourself? So he reaches in his pocket and pulls out a small mirror, looks and says, yeah, that's me, all right, you know. (laughs) And in a way, that's the way our whole identity is created. And meditation is like that. You look and you see all the stories you tell about yourself. I'm this and I'm that. But they're just stories, you know, that's, they're really one-sided. Or, to use the mirror another way that I like to speak about, if you look in the mirror, you notice that you've aged. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the, the strange thing is you don't feel older. And that's because it's the body that's aged. It does, but the mind or the consciousness which knows that doesn't exist in time. The awareness itself is like space, timeless, pure, allowing for the body to go through its changes, allowing birth and death and joy and sorrow. And to know this is begin to trust the space of awareness itself. And we sit in meditation and we become like the courteous audience to the great show of incarnation itself. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world as a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. This from the Diamond Sutra. And we start to see the play of experience, which we all get to participate in, in one way or another. And it's a sacred play. It's a holy play. And the idea isn't to hold on to it. Life is not a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a beautiful and well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, loudly proclaim, wow, what a ride. (laughs) The more you possess, the more you will suffer. But the more you can enter into life and play the game with with the space of awareness itself, the heart becomes wise. You begin to trust that you can live through all this joy and sorrow because you remember who you are which is not the body or the limited thoughts, the body of fear, the the emotions. You become the space of awareness, which is your own true nature, your Buddha nature. In mythos and fairy tales, deities and other great spirits test the hearts of humans by showing up in various forms that disguise their divinity. They show up in robes, rags, silver sashes, or with muddy feet, They show up in scales made of rose petal, as a lime-yellow old woman, as a man who cannot speak, or as an animal who can. The great powers are testing to see if humans have yet learned to recognize the greatness of the spirit in all its varying forms. And this is really the memory that we have deep in us. Who are you really? Who were you before you even you know, became that baby that was born to your parents for better and for worse. And you understand what I mean about that. Now, at first, it seems like it's scary. What do you mean selflessness? What do you mean I'm not this body or these feelings or this thought? But it's not really scary at all. It's a tremendous relief. There's a kind of surrender, less grasping, less possessiveness, a naturalness and ease that comes. 
because there is a reality that we all know and can rest in, and we, it comes back to us in, in times of emergency. You know, all of a sudden people say they get very still. The car is about to crash, and there's the whole opening of time. Oh, wow, look at this life. It might even be ending. You know, well, that was an amazing dance, wasn't it? I mean, it's frightening, but at the same time, look at this whole thing that we've entered into. There is a reality that's unconditioned, unborn. The, the pure awareness of your own true nature. And when we understand this, as Zen Master Suzuki says, when we understand the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, rest in the awareness itself, there we find ourselves in nirvana. Nirvana isn't someplace in Tibet, you know, or after years of monastic living. <clears throat> it's the reality of the present when we let go and open to life in its flow and rest in awareness itself. Kalu Rinpoche, this wonderful Tibetan Lama, said, You live in the illusion and the appearance of things. And we do most of the time. We're caught up in all these different things. You live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you forget. You don't know. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. When you understand, you'll see that you're nothing. That the sense of separateness, you're not really separate. I mean, you're woven in with the earthworms and the ants that made your lunch today, you know, and the farmers and the trucks and the rain clouds and all those things that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about. And it's really literally true. That's what makes up your body. You have the food body, which is the earth producing this beautiful food and making the earth and all those who worked to do it, making things to put into your body and put in this hole at one end into which we regularly stuff the dead plants and animals and move it through the tube and stuff. That's your incarnation. But that's not who you are. You're the spirit that knows it. And you've always been that. And you will know that when you die. And what happens, instead of it becoming scary, is it's like learning to swim. You know, when you're, when you're a little kid and you're first learning to swim and you think the water won't support you. You know, and you're flailing around and it's scary. And then there's that mo- wonderful moment, I remember anyway, you know, where I was kind of floating there on my back and this person let go. And I realized, oh, the water will actually support me. And in the same way we can trust the space of awareness itself and let go and rest and open. And it's beautiful. It's Ajahn Chah holding up the cup and saying, I know this is already broken and I can care for it and enjoy it and use it when it's gone. So it's gone. Again, without moving, just as you sit, let yourself reflect a moment on the spirit of freedom that you have. You know, all the things are going on in your life. Let yourself rest in the place of awareness that can know this just as you know, okay, here's a comedy and a romance and a tragedy and a, you know, uh, an adventure film and all of those things that you can see your life, but as if you see the whole dance and can rest in the knowing. Be the one who knows. Be the knowing itself.
and bring into the heart the sweetness of compassion for all the times you forget and get angry and frightened and caught up, the body of fear that comes in. And then you can take a breath, ah, and remember, ah, yes, wisdom, here we are in this human realm. My good friend Rachel Raman talked about sitting with her elderly mother and she'd made her a nice chicken dinner, made her mother this lovely chicken dinner and served the chicken dinner to her mother. And her mother sat there for a long time. Her mother was in her 80s and didn't start to eat. And Rachel said to her, "Um, Mom, you're not eating. Is there something wrong with the chicken? And her mother said, I was contemplating my chickens. And that's a kind of strange thing. She said, what do you mean? She said, well, really, I was counting my chickens. Okay, that's even stranger. Okay, you're in your 80s. You know how it goes, right? So what do you mean? And she said, well, I've had chicken once or twice a week for the whole of my life. That probably means I've had, you know, 20,000 chickens. And I was thinking about all those chickens and wondering whether I was worth it all those chickens that I ate. I hope you're worth it, you know. Thank you to the chickens, for those of you who aren't vegetarians. I'm I'm wondering if I'm worthy of my chickens, basically. It's like Stephen Levine's book, A Year to Live, to really see the brevity of our life in some way and then to live from the place of wisdom that knows that things are changing and, and bring the kind of care and beauty that comes to it. I mean, what are we looking for in spiritual life, in this existence? It's not going to be very different. It keeps being changing thoughts and feelings and sensations and sounds, pleasure and pain. No more or less than that. But in this, we're given the ability to love. And we're given the ability to be present in this mystery with our heart open and to rest in this human realm with wisdom rather than fear. And that's your liberation. That's your freedom. And the Buddha's invitation then to you is to remember this, to sit in meditation and go, oh yeah, I remember before you go off to the office or the school or wherever you work or when you come home and to be the knowing so that you can live with a tender heart and care for things. And when you do the impermanence of things, it turns out to be also this amazing gift. A teacher, who, uh, an elementary school teacher, a friend of mine, was teaching, um, I think, kindergarten or first grade, and they decided to study death. And little kids are very interested in death, you know. I mean, it, it captures their imagination too. Wow, does that really happen, you know? Who does it happen to? So she took them out into the woods behind the school. And she said, I want you to bring me all the things that you find that are dead. And they started running around, these little kids, you know, and picking up dead logs and mushrooms and dead beetles and all. They made this big pile of dead leaves, all this stuff that was dead. And they started to kind of sit there, you know, after they collected it all and looked at it. And then she asked them a question. She said, first of all, does this seem right to you? You know, does this seem like the way, yes, the way things are? Well, what do you think would happen if we didn't have death? And one of the little kids said, well, then there'd be more and more and more trees, more and more and more trees, and then there'd be no room for us. <laughs> because that's the way the physical world works. It cycles. And you've been born into that. 
it's true. So you can take the ride in a gracious way, or you can kind of go kicking and screaming, but you're going to be on the ride anyway. And the wise heart allows you to be with this endless creativity. Not only are things ending, but it makes room for something new. And every single day, and every encounter that you meet, you don't meet your partner or your lover or your children. You don't meet the same people. You actually meet somebody anew each time that you, you know, open the door. Hidden in impermanence is the endless creativity of life, and it's amazing, and we celebrate it. Hidden in the sorrows is our capacity to feel, to respond with compassion. It is the, the dance that wake us, wakes us up. We turn to God for help when our foundations are shaking, only to learn that it is God who is shaking them. <laughs> And, and it's, it's really true. Um, Dalai Lama, when at some point in our lives we meet real tragedy, which will happen to most every one of us, we can react in two ways. We could lose hope, let ourselves slip into despair, discouragement, alcohol, drugs, unending sadness, or else we can awaken ourselves, discover in ourselves a compassion and an understanding that was hidden there, and act in the world with clarity and love and a genuine heart. It's what's given to you. How will you do it? I think the biggest sorrow is if we don't live our lives with this wisdom and integrity. And then in selflessness... It turns out that as we let go, we become part of everything. It's not that we disappear. Joanna Macy puts it this way. I often read this. Scientists can see more quickly than our politicians that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, no amount of computers or Internet that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, continuing racism and warfare and pollution. It is simple. We're going to have to want different things and seek different pleasures and pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global consumer economy. So this is, this is you know, it's political, it's scientific, um, and it's deeply spiritual. There is some value that we've been born into that's so beautiful and with which we can create um, love, that we can create our lives and the lives that we touch in a way that's very wise. And our suffering calls us to that. It's really the, it's the voice that says, all right, take this and make of it something so that human beings can live together wisely with it. And in our selflessness, the interdependence, we do it not just for ourselves, but it's us. It's the whole of us connected together. And we become then the stewards of the world, which is what Joanna points to. And it's always there. I mean, in every meal, there is the love for the earth and the spices of the rainforest, you know, that you take, those peppercorns that, you know, or that were there on your salmon at lunch or whatever it is that came from the Indonesian 
plantation that they were grown and carried across, you know, four great oceans. It's amazing how interwoven we are. And as we become selfless and less the body of fearless focus, we see ourselves as part of the river and the dance of life. And it becomes beautiful. So these are some reflections for you. And nobody can really tell you how to do it. It's the truth. Nobody's ever lived your life before. Somerset Maugham, the great novelist, said, there are three rules for writing the great American novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. (laughs) And it's true for your life as well. Nobody has ever lived your particular incarnation and your particular life. Nobody. So you get to make of it a, a work of art, a dance, a temple, a place of creativity. But if you hold it tightly, whether you hold your body or your children or the world with the fear and the identification and not seeing that it's changing, you'll be unhappy and suffer. And if you know that the glass is broken, as Ajahn Chah said, and if you know that this is the way incarnation is, you can live in freedom and tremendous compassion and bring your gifts to the world, which desperately needs them. Last little poem from Master Gensei. Trailing my stick, I go down to the garden gate. Fall waters have washed away the planks of the bridge. I dabble in the flow of the stream, delighted by its shallowness, gazing at the flagging, admiring how firm the stones are. The point of life is to know what's enough. Why envy those other world immortals? With the happiness held in one inch square heart, you can fill the whole space between heaven and earth. And heaven and earth are given to us. So let's sit for a moment. So a couple of very brief announcements and a little very simple chant and we'll go out into the summer evening. First, thank you for your kind attention. And um, use your meditation as a way to return to this heart of wisdom and compassion for yourself and all you touch. So the announcements. Next Monday night we'll be in the retreat hall in the 
uh, upper hall there, and we could use some volunteers to help with that. So if you can volunteer, let Sarah or Shannon or someone know, that would be very helpful, or come early and just help us. Um, and the second is that uh, I would like to put into the room and into your hearts um, the name Liza Matlock, who's um, in the ICU with leukemia and in a very tenuous, at the moment, life-threatening situation and a member of the community for your prayers and loving kindness for Liza, who's a young woman, um, that she might be well and safe. Um, and uh, for all those that you know, I mean, if we started to name them, everyone would have names of those that you hold in your heart. Because it's so tentative and precious and beautiful to tend to it well. So our, our closing chant is this. In India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together and the greeting is namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. And uh, the root of the word namaste is the word in Sanskrit namo, which means to bow to or to honor, or pay respects to in some way. It's the beginning of many great Buddhist texts start with the word namo. And I'd like us to chant the word namo nine times. And as you do, again, our practice is to bow to the way things are. And the way things are doesn't mean that you can't tend to them or change them or, or, or right injustice or care for things that need to be cared for, but to do it from a wise and compassionate heart, from that which is connected rather than that which is separate and frightened and holding. So we'll bow to this incarnation, and as you chant it, you can think of whatever it is that you wish to bow to. And please include Liza and Matlock in your bows and your prayers. Namo in your Buddha nature in this wise and compassionate heart that's always present. Thank you. Have a good week ahead. See you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.